Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I'm joined by guest Digby Lee. Digby, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Could you give folks a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I have a law firm with 30 people in total. Uh, I'm in probably practice law for close to 40 years now and done it a lot of different ways from being in a large firm with 100 lawyers and a partner there to having a partnership and having grown that. And now I have my own firm that I've grown over the last 15 years. Wow, that's great. So all sorts of different types of experience. Does the do you have a particular kind of specialization or specialty or kind of clients that you serve in your current incarnation? Yeah, right now our firm would focus on helping people in business. You know, in our world, that's called corporate commercial uh, area practice. Uh, we also do a lot of other solicitors type work like real estate and commercial lending and estate planning. So on the solicitor side, not so much the litigation side, but I have a huge history of doing insolvency work. And so that's got a lot of litigation to it. So I've pretty well seen the full ambit of the practice of law in the um, close to 40 years. Amazing. Okay, great. Uh, so that I think is going to set a really good context for the main purpose of this phone call, which is that you offer fixed fees. Yeah, so the, and you even have a name for it, Frank Fee TM. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, what I would describe it as agreed upon pricing upfront. Mm-hmm. So it is not necessarily just fixed fee. It could be a periodic fee, like a monthly fee, could be a success fee, but most often it would be a lump sum fixed fee agreed to in advance. That's amazing. So as I'm sure a lot of people know, anyone listening to this knows, I mean, based on the title that I am not a fan of ditching, of, of billing hourly. And of all the people I've worked with, because I've talked to people from all sorts of professions who traditionally bill hourly of all of them i get the most resistance from lawyers or attorneys and they 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 say oh well that's that's all well and good for software developers or designers or that's all well and good for everyone else but it's not possible here and well the funny thing is i I get that from lawyers i also get it from everyone else uh, but in a lesser degree so I love when I see an example of someone who is using a, a different model, not billing by the hour, and you know wanted to have you talk about your experience doing that. Yeah, maybe let me go back a little bit, um, not too far, um, not into my childhood at least. <laughs> uh, the I'll go back to uh, maybe three or four years ago, uh, having practiced law for a long time and having seen the interactions between clients and lawyers I made up my mind quite a while ago that I really thought the industry was ripe for change, and particularly when it came to pricing. Uh, in and as I and I'll get into it probably a little bit later. As you peel the onion away, you find out in how many ways, you know, taking a different approach than billing by the hour really is a benefit for so many of the stakeholders. Mm. So, I it's funny uh my son who was a lawyer is now uh transitioned into other uh things um it really that was the thing that really got him and he he pulled up recently a memo that i did that like i was making this proclamation to myself that the industry must change i'm gonna lead the way and of course it got filed and then i was um coming back from 
sunnier places than Vancouver on uh, March, I think it was 16th of last year, just as uh, COVID had fully set in. And I was sitting on the plane and I literally said to myself, what better time than now to create a bit of certainty for clients in such an uncertain climate? So it just was the one catalyst that put me over. And then uh, the journey since then um, has been quite the journey. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so to, to kind of, the first thing that we did is we realized that we did what probably a lot of lawyers that in the legal industry, you know, it's known as alternative fee arrangements and it's, and there are law firms that are doing it. But what I was finding and what we first did is we, we looked at, at how we were going to go about it. And we started to create pricing guidelines, um, you know, for standardized work, we could actually attach numbers to that for more complex work, like M and a work. We, um, we attached, uh, variables, if you will, like if this is the case, then it's going to be more expensive. But we had a very, uh, you know, what I have found as I've, I've watched a lot, what's going on in the last, now getting close to a year, is that what is happening in the industry in the alternate fee arrangement is what law firms are doing is they're trying to estimate the amount of time that they're going to put into a project. And then they're just agreeing that that will be the fee. Mm -hmm. And so we started off down that path, um, probably like most things in my life, not always knowing where I was going to end up, but mm -hmm. being quite prepared to jump out of the plane and see if the parachute would open <laughs> as I was going to the ground. Um, and so we did that and that took a long time and a lot of work through our, with our, with our staff to creating, create pricing guidelines. And we started by dividing the, the work that we did into types of projects that we commonly did. So we took from three or four areas of practice, we converted that into uh, say 40 or 50 types of projects. And so, and then we started to um, open up our files or, so that we could track things by those types of projects. So why don't I take a, a, a quick pause and just see how I'm doing so far before I finish the journey. Yeah, that's great. So what you're describing is is the way that most people go about it at first when they when they they the light bulb goes on and they're like, "Wait a second. Uh I I don't like the kind of customer experience I'm or client experience I'm creating with this billing in arrears potentially forever type of um type of approach and I want to give I like I like your distinction. I want to agree upon a price in advance. It might not be fixed. It might be recurring or something like that. But it creates predictability and it allows them to make an accurate buying decision because if without that, they can't decide to go forward with you without some kind of number in their head. And when you don't agree to a price and instead, like most hourly billers, you only provide an estimate, then they treat the estimate like a price. And then if you end up going over, which regrettably is the most common situation, perhaps the lion's share of the time you go over the estimate. And as you as you go farther and farther over the estimate, they you are eating up what they would have enjoyed as their profit margin, whether that is a dollar amount or an emotional profit margin. They feel like if they had known it was going to be this much, they would have made a different decision way back when. And that was the feeling that kicked me out of hourly billing. I couldn't stand that. And uh, so then what do you do? Well, uh, a lot of people don't immediately jump to 
a value-based approach. They jump to a time, a fixed time and materials approach. And you can tell me what happened. I'm curious to hear what happened when you, when you tried that first, because it's a very common first step with software development, uh, which I, I would consider to be a, on the complex end of things, you know, maybe I don't, I've never done a merger and acquisition, but it's complicated. And the, there's a lot of unknowns. The client is heavily involved. It's very collaborative. Uh, it's impossible to know everything up front. So it, what typically happens is when people, sw- it, it, when people say, oh, I'm going to give you a fixed price based on what I suspect are the time and materials required to do this project with you, they, they don't ask the right questions and therefore always underestimate the number of hours and therefore they set the prices way too low and then they feel like they're getting burned or they regret it or um, they start to resent the customer or they start to hate me because I'm the one that tricked them into trying this. Uh, so I, I'd be, I'm curious to hear what was your experience when you switched to fixed fee based on time and materials, if you saw similar kind of outcomes? Yeah. So I were, so we already probably 90% of our bills were already fixed fee. Um, and before we went to uh, Frank fee and about 60% of our revenue. And that's because there's a lot of standardized types of projects that you can estimate the, the resources that you need to complete them as examples of real estate yeah. transaction and incorporation of a company. Um, we even can, could do before complex um, tax-driven reorganizations because it's really just the compilation of a number of, of steps. So you, we already had the mentality that we didn't necessarily bill just by the amount of uh, resources that we allocated to it. So that really helped. And we knew that, um, you know, we, we knew that it wasn't just going to be a matter of estimating how long it was going to take to do it. So we're in a, we're in a, good position to then move forward from having created these pricing guidelines. Some of them work well for very standardized projects. Um, I would say uh, if you talk to most attorneys or lawyers, they will tell you that an M&A transaction and trying to predict how that's going to go is virtually impossible. Like, And that's why you get so much pushback on converting from the hourly um, the hourly billing model. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge culture in our industry, like in everybody's industry, like in a, or a lot of industries, I should say, where you don't want to work for free. You don't want to be underwater. And dealing with that cultural shift is, you know, we, I knew going into it would be one of the most important things. So before we launched, um, I knew we needed to do to create the pricing guidelines because we would need more resources to price as we move forward. Mm-hmm. But then I, uh, I'd say there's two secret sauces for what we did. Uh, the first one, as you've already uh, mentioned, was we gave it a name. We actually went to a branding company. Uh, they were terrific. We went through 30 or 40 names. And then we picked a name that really felt that really fit our culture. We, if you go on our website, you'll see we have a smile on our face. We do serious work, but we try not to take ourselves too, too seriously. So creating a name that would be a bit memorable, um, would have people uh, go wonder a little bit about it before. Um, we thought that was perfect. And, um, and it's worked out. I mean, I, clients now that come to me and say, Digby, can I get the frank fee on that? So it (laughs) it actually has become a thing. And I just chuckle when I think about it. But it was it also was a little bit about not dipping your toe in, which is 
one of the hardest things um, and takes a real entrepreneurial spirit because dipping your toe in would be, would say, well, we have fixed fee alternatives. Like I'll do that on a fixed fee, but we decided to jump in the deep end and say, no, we're in like, we're going to give it a name and that's what we're going to do. And so that was part of it. And I think it was important internally as well as externally. And not that there aren't, you know, hiccups and not that it isn't, you know, it's not easy, but um, we're, we are all in, we declared we're all in, we gave it a name. So that was part of the secret sauce. And then the other part uh, that was really important. And I think it's the kind of the critical difference in how we've approached it is taking a bit of a Billy Bean data analytics approach at the back end. Mm -hmm. So knew that, um, to be successful, we needed to create a culture of creating great systems and having optimal resource allocation. And, you know, this is, you know, a lot of when I've listened to you, Jonathan, it's there's a, it's often about an individual and trying to price. Uh, but I've got 30 people and everybody's got to go through this and everybody's got to uh, be part of it. So it, it really required good systems as well as just a, like I'm going to do it mentality. Sure. And so what we've done there is we've created a, um, an outlier approach. So we've kept recording time costs because if you, you know, in the legal industry, time cost reflects, you know, effectively paying someone's salary, covering the overhead and creating a profit. And so we've, util we've utilized this, the hourly billing rates that we have, but really as a management tool. So at the back end, we every month we create a list of outliers over a certain threshold in dollars and over a certain percentage in terms of what we would call billing realization rate mm -hmm. call it when the resources that you have to devote to something are not as you know not as much as you would expect to generate the uh the price that you generate and we also look at the the downside of that and we create a monthly report all the people that had significant input into that debrief in, a, in a, an automated way now. So they talk about like, how, why did it go well? Why didn't it go well? How, what, you know, how are they? And so out of that, they make commitments to work on the system. And that turns into a report to management that then can filter down. So can those- you, Can you make that a little bit more concrete? Like I get what you're saying at an abstract level. Um, and it, I'm curious if you could kind of, you know, like what, what's an example of an outlier? Are you basically just saying that somebody worked like a hundred hours more on something than you expected them to like something just took a long time. So let me, I'll put it into the math of it. Um, which is, so if I was to work on a file and I was to bill for all the time that was expended and the other people and say, you added all that up and it came to, uh, $25,000, but the actual fee that we'd agreed to came to $35,000. That would be a positive outlier. Mm -hmm. Now on the flip side, or pardon me, thirty-five, yeah, $25,000 worth of cost for $35,000 worth of fee. So that's a positive. Didn't have to allocate as much resources as we would normally if we were just billing by the hour. On the other side, if we did something that, say, generated um, uh $25,000 of fee, but the time cost was 35,000, it would be an outlier on the other side. Is that? So are, and do, yeah, is the input is the cost input there what they would have billed out at? Or are you dividing their salary by the number of hours you expect them to work? Yeah, so 
we haven't taken it to the level of actually looking at their salary and their allocation of overhead. Because if we take an approach of using our standard hourly rates, it really does account for someone working the amount of time we think they're going to work in a year. It really does allocate, it does include an element of their salary, an element of, of covering overhead, and an element of profit. So we so it we haven't had to adjust in, um, to just looking at salaries and overhead. Yeah, I get that. It's a pretty good proxy. Mm -hmm. And so... So that, and so there's a huge, so I'm a huge believer that if we create the culture of continuous learning, a loop with that, then we're going to great, we're going to great, great, we're going to create great systems and we're going to be, have optimal resource allocation. And, and in the legal industry, that probably means having the person that can, you know, best do a job at the lowest cost for us doing what they can. And lawyers, lawyering, if you will, as opposed to input, you know, keyboarding and information when <laughs> by others. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. And, I, you know, for people who are longtime listeners of the show, um, I have a little bit more cavalier approach to it. When people tell me that they're still tracking hours, uh, I say, well, your prices are too low. You know, because if you're now imagine if you're if at the end of the month, most projects you would have billed out at twenty five thousand, but you got two hundred and fifty thousand. I imagine at a certain point you'd be like, we can stop tracking hours. <laughs> like I'm not worried about I'm not worried about the profitability because we're wildly profitable. Do you th do you think you would still track hours if you're prof if you're 10 xing your billables, what, what you would have billed out? I think from a management point of view, you would, because if you're 10 times, you'd want to be 20 times. <laughs> and, and, you know, those are large numbers and they, they would scare clients away. But, um, but I think you, from a management point of view, I think it's important. And because as an example, we can look at different areas of law and some are much more profitable than others. Mm -hmm. And so that's important information in deciding on taking on new tasks. Mm -hmm. Um, isn't that kind of obvious though? Like, do you really need to have all of your employees track their hours to detect the most profitable areas? I'd still say yes. Now, you know, bear in mind, uh, we launched on Tuesday after Labor Day. We're now five or six months into it or whatever. And so we're learning a lot and we're sure. constantly, um, what I do know is that our, profitability is is going in the right direction even at this early stage and i'd say culturally there's been a big shift at the beginning of this calendar year to working more on systems so that mm -hmm. we can become even more profitable yeah i, I actually I'm, i don't mean to push back too much I, I actually like this because i know that especially when you've got a culture shift in a large you know 30 person organization people are you know your coo or whoever your cfo or whoever's sort of in charge of of optimizing things and your and yourself you're going to want to have some kind of canary in the coal mine some kind of uh, guardrails and and metrics a dashboard that you can look at to be like okay we're not just trusting our gut instinct here like we can see that had we done these on in a hourly billable f uh, type of engagement we would have made less money, like full stop. Plus the, let, let's flip it to the client side. What's the client experience like now? Do people, do people, do cli are, are clients who are paying 35,000 instead of what would have been 25,000? Are they super happy 
do they come back for more? Do they re refer you? Do they give you glowing testimonials? Yeah, I, I don't think any client would look at it. I'm paying 35 and I would have paid 25. I think they're looking at it. I, uh, and the response I get is um, they love it. Like they literally, they, they thank me for doing it. They, they enjoy the conversation up front. And uh, so we, I can't think of any pushback. I haven't had one client say to me, oh my goodness, you know, you're just trying to make more money. They just really, really enjoy the, the certainty of it all and the budget. And, I, and, and Jonathan, I've actually adapted in, in my own way um, your three steps that you use in your why, um, which is I think you was on your uh, podcast back in last November. But, you know, letting the client answer the value question for themselves, like, you know, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do it now? And why do you want to do it with us? And I really, I think that's so powerful. And as you go down that, you know, they'll, they'll fix the price for themselves. And uh, so I think that's, you know, I, I love the dynamic. It's so easy. And I, I'm trying to think of examples where I've given the price and somebody said, oh, no, I don't think so. Like it, they are, I think the process is the, is the point, not, not the number that you arrive at at mm -hmm. the end. Right. Yeah. It builds tons of trust early and it allows you to ask questions that help ensure you will deliver customer satisfaction. If they're just like, you know, if you're like, oh, we're 200 bucks an hour, do you want us to start doing stuff? And they say, yeah. And you're like, okay, what do you want us to do? Uh, not that you would do that, but just in general, in, a, in an hourly billing situation, it allows you to get to work before you understand what you're even trying to accomplish. Because all of these tasks, there's all these tasks like, oh, look at all these tasks to do. It's like, oh, well, let's start doing these tasks. But there and, and you there's no um, necessity for a conversation about well, what's the goal. <laughs> and so people tend not to talk about the goal. They tend to talk about much more low level sort of punch lists and requirements and things like that. And you, you, do, you don't usually get invited into a bigger picture conversation about what's the business outcome that you're looking to achieve here. And that's what the why conversation does. It, it helps them step back and share with you what their goals are so that in the course of the project, there's probably thousands of little decisions that you're going to make on their behalf, no matter whether you know what you're trying to do or not, you're going to make a lot of little decisions on their behalf. So if you know what the desired outcome is, in other words, if you know where you're driving to, uh, you'll end up there even without having to have like a lot of collaboration about minutia with the client. So, I think the uh, other real uh, key client benefit is communication throughout the project. When I'm in, every, virtually every lawyer will have experienced the the uh, reticent client doesn't want to phone you, doesn't want to talk to you. Um, in our case, sometimes we'll go to the paralegal, not the lawyer. They're so mindful of the hourly rate that you get poor communication and you can't get to the best result. And I, it's, and I, I actually sell that. I go, you can phone me anytime you want, you know, after, after we agree on price, you know, phone me. I want you to, I want to know what's on your mind. Uh, because if I know what's on your mind, I'm going to be able to get you where you want to get to at the end of the day. And I really like that. That's, um, you know, I believe that, you know, the approach that we're following is really important for all three stakeholders, not just the clients, um, not just the law firm and profitability, which, 
you know, we've talked a lot about, but for the individual lawyers, it is awful to have conversations after you've completed a file and you're trying to justify why you talked to the lawyer down the hall about something. And they're like, you weren't working on my file and you're trying to explain what actually they know more than I do. And it was really good that we both spoke and trust me. And so those, those conversations just don't uh, resonate with people. And it's so nice not to have them and to just be able to do, you know, great work for great clients. Hmm. Excellent. I'm not surprised to hear that, but I have heard from, from some folks in the space, uh, that it's there. It's, I don't know if regulation is the right word, but there's, there's, there's rules around what you can promise. And, uh, and I, I feel like I have heard that in some, some places, I don't know if this is like a United States thing or individual States thing where it's required that you track your hours or that you can only, uh, I'm trying to remember, but maybe you, you know, you're an expert. What, what are the industry specific regulations or challenges or um, compliance that you need to navigate by switching off of a bit billing hour, uh, an hourly billing model and going to perhaps a more outcome-based project kind of fees? So we believe that, well, first of all, we do track our time and we do that. Um, there's a, and probably in most jurisdictions, there's a, con- there's a concept of taxation of lawyers' accounts. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, including whether you've agreed upon, you've had agreed upon pricing. So, you know, a contractual arrangement, if you will. So uh, we feel it's important to be law society compliant here to continue to track our, the time we expend on files. But there's lots of work where, where attorneys don't, you know, routine re- residential real estate work. I think you'd find, I'm sure throughout the U.S., there'd be a lot of firms that don't track their hours. So I think you do it uh, to have the data, if you will, to support your fee if it's called into question at the end. Mm-hmm. Do, are you in the in the practice of sending your timesheets to the client or that would only be something that if, if there was a problem and they requested them? Uh, so uh, I can't think of an example being asked for a timesheet when we've had a fixed fee uh, billing arrangement. And, and you're and it's not part of the system that you would provide them. But I mean, and I think we would resist because it wouldn't be relevant to our to our fee arrangement, uh, mm-hmm. whether they're entitled to it. But if they really wanted to see it, we probably would send it on. But I just, it doesn't come up because it's, you know, if you've communicated well and you have an arrangement, then you have happy clients. Sure. Yeah. Believe me, I've seen that firsthand. So, uh, what does your why conversation look like? So with a software developer, when when I would do that in the past, I would get to some really concrete outcomes. So you, you can get to some pretty concrete outcomes. They might not be, it might not be a dollar amount. A lot of times it is a dollar amount that they're trying to, they're trying to achieve a transformation and they believe I can contribute to it, which is why they're talking to me. So I want to find out what that outcome is. And in a B2B scenario, which is something, you know, you're, you're a B2B, then it's pretty, in my world, it was relatively easy to tie back my contribution to a goal that had numbers associated with it in some way. Um, but not always. Sometimes it was a, sometimes it was a moonshot and they were happy to invest $50,000 to potentially get a patent on a new mobile web process or something like that. So it's not like a definite, uh, uh, 
bottom line ROI kind of thing, but it is something that they're, that they're, you know, it's like a big picture thinker who wants to invest in something. You see a window of opportunity and it's worth 50 grand to them to get an expert to help ensure that it's going to go well. What kind of outcomes are your typical, you know, like what, maybe just what are some common outcomes that your uh, buyers are looking for from an engagement? It's kind of interesting because, you know, I think as people in business, we tend to focus on the financial side of what people are looking for. But the the honest truth is that a lot of times um, what they're really looking at is the experience they're going to have. Um, it's like why you go to Starbucks and you buy a coffee at Starbucks instead of at the local coffee shop where you might get it for half the price. Uh, people actually, uh, I, I believe we sell experiences. We don't really sell legal services in the pure sense. Yes, they're looking to get something done. Yes, they're looking to to buy that company or sell sell you know that sell their company. Um, yes, they're looking to incorporate a company because they want to go into business. But I think they're really when you dig down, you know, people are looking for um, they're looking for trusted advisors in our industry, and they're looking for people that they can have uh, open conversations with and feel good about the experience and feel you know feel like they that uh that they've been successful so there's a huge element of that in terms of what success looks like to them yeah i I wish my lawyer had a subscription service like i I probably haven't talked to him in a year i just get an email from an assistant or or whatever they're called with like my corporate paperwork for the year sign this and email it back and and I wouldn't talk to him anywhere near all the time. I have no reason to like socialize with my, I like my lawyer, but he's not, you know what I mean? I'm not going to bother him. But there are definitely times when I would have liked to send an email or pick up the phone, ask a quick question, get an educated answer that I trusted. And, and I'm not even, you know, I think he charges 250 bucks an hour, it, you know, for the six minutes that it would take, it's worth the money, but it's not worth the invoice and sending the payment and, you know, just like all of the, it, it's not a lot of friction, but it's enough friction. And I'm like, eh, I'll just Google it, you know? And it it's, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. You know, I just feel like I would absolutely be paying him more money for the, for a more frictionless experience of access to his expertise. That would be great. And I have a, my, my doctor's like that. I have a concierge doctor. I wish my lawyer was a concierge lawyer. Yeah, I really believe in that. I think that uh, we've created the culture around our firm where if you can pick up the phone and we answer off the top of our head, we're not sending you a bill. Like you can, you can get that. That's part of our relationship and part of us defining whether there's scope of work to be done in which we are going to charge you. And we want people to phone us when they're thinking, you know, I'm about to enter into a new employment agreement with somebody. It's a little bit different. Is that okay? Or what do you think? And we'll go, hey, that sounds like a big deal. I think we should dig in a bit on that. Um, you know, give us a bit of information. And then that sounds like something that will have value to you. Mm-hmm. So we've created an open door on that. And particularly with the companies like you're talking about where we host their corporate records and they naturally hear from us once a year, we build in the culture that yes, please pick up the phone. Like maybe it's, and we get a lot of opportunities because they're not afraid to pick up the phone and get a bill for $50 for um, a six minute call. Yeah. And, And the thing I want to stress though, is I don't care about the $50. It's the overhead. 
So it's just enough overhead and friction and annoyance that I would rather that I just won't do it. We so, feel the same. We're yeah. actually, I feel the same. I don't want to send a bill for $50 because that's got to go through three or four different people to get out the door. Right. I don't want to do it either, just like the client doesn't want to get it. So we just call it out a little bit and say, we're not going to do that. Like, mm-hmm. just pick up. So I think it's cultural too. And as I was alluding to before, one of the difficulties is there's a mentality that you should get paid for your time. It's like going to, it's like going to, uh, you know, work in a coffee shop and not get paid for the first half hour that that can't possibly be okay. Mm. So, okay. That's a great question. So how does this boil, you know, since, since you've got 30 people working there, how does this trickle down into incentive structures, if any? Ah, uh, so, uh, I think that's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I think there's a, we're still at a very early stage and we're, we're working on how it's easy to see people's financial contribution, but sometimes it's harder to see what they're doing for system enhancement. And so I think it's a work in progress right now. I don't think we have it solved. Interesting. We're, we're six months in. Right. And so <laughs> we've jumped in right. and now, now we're learning how to swim. Great. So let's, let's shift gears dramatically into you know, you've got 40 years of experience in this space and all sorts of different size firms. What are, can you, can you think off the top of your head, some of the negative externalities of billing by the hour inside the firm? Because like that now I'm thinking about incentives and and I've heard horror stories about people hoarding hours and like working 80 hour weeks and all these other things. Did you see any of that? Uh, Well, I've seen it in the industry for sure. And there's a, a natural inclination of that that you that your firm culture needs to deal with but you can you imagine i mean i think the youth are leaving our industry probably increasing numbers because of the grind and because it's you know from that point of view there's no scalability you know it's as money you know how many more hours am i going to work and at some point there's some limit and then people burn out and go this can't possibly be the right way to do it so feel like we are we're making real inroads with the individual lawyers creating an environment where they can they're synthesized to have to really not spend hours doing things but to generate revenue at the end of the day yeah it's like do this as fast as you possibly can without cutting corners and then go home early if you want like i don't care what you do you know what i mean 100 look yeah. at look at uh, revenue in the end don't look at how many hours you logged in it's a real grind in the larger firms, and I'm sure there's lots of um, lots of that in Boston, which is close by to you. But where your expectations are, you know, grinding out 2,000 plus hours a year. When you do the math, that doesn't leave much time for anything else, and it doesn't really allow you to spend. You know, doesn't really reward you for spending those the 2,000 hours. You know, in a profitable way, mm. you just got to keep logging those hours. 2,000 billable. Yes. Yeah. That's why people end up working 60 hour weeks and 80 hour weeks because they have to do a lot of stuff that's not billable. And, and what does that lead to? That leads to billing for stuff that maybe wasn't really, you know, or another one that I've seen is like, oh, well, I was thinking about both clients at the same time. (laughs) So double billing. And uh, I don't know if, I think that is patently illegal in the legal space or maybe illegal is the wrong term, but like an infraction at the very least. But I, I know software developers who proudly report that, oh, well, I created a, I wrote a piece of code that I could deploy on two different projects. So I charged them both. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. 
I think that the problem when you charge them for the time you spent, because that's just dishonest. You know, as an example, if you incorporate a company and you devote your resources to having great systems so that you can do it efficiently, then and you pick a price for that, then you're not really billing for the time to start with. And that, that feels fair. And I think maybe it was on one of your podcasts, I heard the example of why should the first client pay for all the development of the system and the second and third and fourth clients kind of get it for free. And then, yeah, the first you know, client subsidizes all the subsequent ones. Ron Baker talks about that a lot too. Yeah, yeah it doesn't make any sense. Like any, there's so many ways to look at hourly billing that make no sense. It's uh, it's wild. And so the to, to have someone from the legal space that's jumped in and is seeing really good early results uh, is fascinating and wonderful because it feels to me like the last bastion of the the one i mean my understanding of the history of the billable hour is that it originated in the legal area and that it was deemed a bad idea at the beginning uh, and yet it caught on and then got a little bit and i'm paraphrasing a little bit this is mostly from ron baker speaking of ron baker uh, but my understanding is that it, it became kind of codified uh, and what that does is creates a apples to apples comparison between uh, it creates a mercenary environment where where expertise is i think devalued like like horribly devalued and everybody's focusing on the wrong thing like as a just so to, to make that more concrete the fact that you that clients would be reluctant would think to pick up the phone to call you and then not do it that is a great example of why it's bad because in a service business you should want your clients to pick up the phone and call you you know, and, and to set up a structure where that, where you basically selling yourself like a cab driver, uh, it's, it's bonkers, but I, you know, obviously I recognize that it's the normal way and there's a sort of consensual hallucination that it, in some areas that it's the only way. And obviously it keeps me up nights talking about it, <laughs> thinking yeah. about it. Well, there's no doubt that there, when you listen to people that are the influencers or advisors in the legal industry, the clients are demanding the alternative fee arrangements. The, um, the percentages go up markedly every year. So my, you know, I'm not an expert. I spend, you know, time trying to understand it, but my guess is this. Um, and the next, you know, us having done what we've done, uh, we're going to be uh, more profitable in the next, you know, two, three, four, five years. And then after that, the competitive forces, you're going to have to be, uh, you're going to have to be able to price differently than the current system or you're not going to be competitive. You know, with technology and everything driving you nowadays, uh, the world's shifting that way. And so we're just trying to get on the crest of the wave. And to be honest, um, I love the conversations with clients. It's so easy and it's, it's just a better experience for, for the lawyers and for definitely for the clients and, and for the law firm, it's a better experience as well. So all three stakeholders and the pain points that you are dealing with, the further you get, the more layers of the onion that you peel back, the more you learn. I think if we're to talk in a, say another, um, you know, year, uh, we're going to have a different conversation, you know, with, with the learning that's taken place in that year. Cause I think we're just at the beginning and just immersed in it. That, yeah, well, we should definitely keep in touch because that uh, my 
My hope is that at that time, you will start working on your book, Frank Fees, and we'll be able to have you back on the show and, and promote it. <laughs> well, it's a little something, you know, as a, a side hustle, if you will, not so side. Uh, we've decided that the legal industry is ripe for change. And so we're taking what we're doing and uh, we're on the cusp of turning it into a SaaS product to sell to legal firms. And oh, good. So we really believe that we've, we're approaching it differently and we can make it uh, simple enough that it will be, um, yeah, it will be something that can be implemented because it's got to be simple as we've talked about the cultural change is so significant in our industry, mm -hmm. but if you can make it so that it's different than just trying to estimate how much time you're going to spend and you build the, the backend system mm -hmm. that I've talked about, I think that there's a real, um, I think there'll be an appetite for it. We're excited about the, as I call it, the side hustle. I love that. One of one of the, I, I, I try not to say it too much because it's kind of dark, but I see hourly billing as a cancer on professional services. And I, and I pick that metaphor very specifically because it invades the whole firm at every level. Your thinking, your systems, your processes, everything is centered around the billable hour. And to get it out is, it can be a catastrophic event for the business it needs to be carefully removed. <laughs> so, you know, for, for somebody, somebody that's had like every system, every thought, every process is centered around hourly billing. It is not as simple as flipping a switch. I mean, I'm, I'm very impressed that you were able to, you know, that you, you didn't dip your toe in, you jumped in the deep end and were able to, um, you know, swim, you know, right away. So the idea of having a like I, I tell the story often when I first had the kind of epiphany about hourly billing being nuts and f stumbling across something called value-based fees, I was like, I, I went to my, the owner of the firm and I said, look, I, I have identified something that we need to talk about. And so we talked about it and he was like, I get what you're saying and I think you're right, but how would we switch? And I had no answer for that. And if there was a software you know, I could imagine a, a legal firm thinking the same thing. And if there was a software package that systematized the process and gave them a raft, you know, a, a floaty at the deep end of the pool, I think that would be a boon. I think that would be huge. And I'm really, really glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I'll keep you up to date. We're, uh, you know, we're shooting for a launch in April and uh, we've done a lot of work. Um, but as you can imagine, just we're living the experience and trying to, you know, carry on the day job at the same time as do this and, uh, and trying to put in a, in, it's gotta be easy. It's gotta be usable because, um, you can't get in the hard to do pile. Mm -hmm. Oh, so. that's great. All right. Well, where can people go to find out more about you and maybe, the, maybe they need your legal services or maybe they want to hear more about, uh, the side hustle. Yeah. So, um, for me, uh, if you ever Google my name, there's not many of us in the world, uh, Digby, L-E-I-G-H-D-I-G-B-Y. So, um, that's the easiest way to find me. Uh, if you Google the name, you'll find me in terms of the new, uh, the SaaS product, it will launch under a slightly different name called AltFee. So you can find that at altfeeco.com. Um, that's um, the uh, wait, altfee.co.com. I'm sorry, altfeeco.com. Okay. Uh, website to be up soon. So don't go too fast. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name. That's love where it. you find it. And uh, yeah, super excited about that. Of course, um, compared to the legal industry, that's actually scalable. 
<laughs> Great. Fabulous. Well, this has been super fun. Yeah, Jonathan, thanks so much. I, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to be too uh, sappy about it, but I find that, you know, I really love the area that you're in, how passionate you are. Um, and you, and just like me, you're jumping into the deep end and, uh, and owning it completely. And, uh, so I've had the good fortune to be able to follow along in a number of your podcasts and, and, uh, learn, learn lots from it. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Love it. Thanks very much. We absolutely have to stay in touch. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Would you like to learn how to get paid what you're worth? How about selling your expertise and not your labor? What about making more money without working more hours? We work through all of this together in the pricing seminar. Registration starts soon, so head on over to thepricingseminar.com to add your name to the announcement list. That URL again is thepricingseminar.com. I hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time. Or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space. Or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.